Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me today, we have freelance writer, Fraser Brown. Hello. And we're also joined by our friend, PC Gamers, Evan Lotti. Hey there. Uh, so, as we get into the annual like winter of wargaming uh, here at 3MA, I want to take a quick detour into shooters uh, once again, which I'm not sure we really covered since uh, Evan was on the show to talk about um, Red Orchestra 2, uh, Rising Storm. Uh, being completely honest here, the reason this is coming back up is there was simply like no way in hell uh, that we, that a World War I shooter like Battlefield 1 uh, was not going to make it onto this show. Uh, you know, it's, it's the war I probably am most interested in, and also like there were a lot of early comparisons uh, to Bad Company 2 uh, when Battlefield 1 came out, so... I've been really excited to try this game out and also, you know, to talk about it with, uh, with people. But I, I think what intrigued me the most about Battlefield 1, even when I first heard about it, is that World War I always seemed like kind of impossible territory uh, for a shooter to, to really succeed in. Um, and I think that's, like, you know, to, to start out, like, I think it's probably just the idea we have about these conflicts, right? Like... The Call of Duty and Medal of Honor games, um, you know, they, they kind of brought this whole genre into being, uh, at least in its present form. And I think they were kind of all inspired by World War II movies. <laughs> they were kind of inspired by World War II movies. No, in many cases, they were like shot for shot ripping off uh, World War II movies. And uh, like these visions of like individual heroism uh, that you find in a lot of those in a lot of those movies, right? Like despite the fact that like World War II was an awful, like, terribly bloody war. It, it doesn't have this... It, it has a better reputation, I guess, than World War One. Like, World War One is kind of remembered as being this war that, like, sort of annihilates the individual when it's just, like, mass slaughter. Uh, World War Two. I don't know. Like, I think everyone imagines it being fought by, like, you know, your Hollywood platoon, right? There's, there's the machine gun guy. There's the sniper from the South. Stuff like that. Um, and so, I guess it always, it always sort of... Seemed like that lent itself to to shooters in in a way. Whereas World War One, at least I think in the in the popular imagination, is just like human wave attacks against machine guns. Uh, so before before we go too far into talking about either the campaign or the multiplayer aspects of this game, uh, I am curious. Just taking taking Battlefield One, um, you know, did they pull it off? Did they, did did they? succeed in making a good shooter set in World War One uh, that still actually feels like World War One. It feels like a really big question because there are so many different ways you can look at it because I would say that they didn't make a great World War One shooter but I don't necessarily think World War One makes for brilliant shooters. Uh, if, if you, I imagine, when I think of World War One, I, I think of 90% just hanging around waiting to die and then 10% rushing the enemy and most people just dying very quickly. It's not fun. It's not entertaining. It's you have like a very short space of time where you're going to be alive and you're going to be just mowed down or crushed by this slow lumbering tank. And... I think there are some games that actually try to kind of simulate that, simulate the, the trench warfare, for instance. And I think most of that is just waiting around and not really knowing what's going on. Whereas Battlefield 1, I, I think kind of DICE have just drawn a lot from their own experiences making, you know, World War II modern and sci-fi shooters and combined it all to try and make a spectacular 
spectacular shooter that's got kind of the guns and the machines and maybe some of the themes from the First World War without really simulating it in any way. I mean, tanks, for instance, move so quickly in Battlefield 1, and even when they get stuck, they're, they're not going to be stuck for very long. It's quite simple. And they're just darting around the battlefield, and it doesn't really feel very realistic. But I don't necessarily want it to be realistic, because I think I'd be quite depressed. Yeah, I think some people might call Battlefield 1 a greatest hits album of World War 1, and that's uh, a greatest hits album of the most terrible aspects of World War 1 kind of rolled together <laughs> right. in a way. Um, you know, when you think about one of my friends works at EA who worked on the game, uh, you know, we were having a conversation about, okay, so giant blimps over a battlefield or like war trains and, you know, mounted cavalry combat and artillery and these tanks. And like his argument, uh, and I want to, you know, put him as the representative for this game. He was just having ca casual conversation about it was like all of these things individually occurred in World War One in some way, shape and form, all these individual weapons and people and scenes and whatnot, we just kind of rolled them together into a single battlefield and compressed them. But, you know, really, if we're asking, like, is this game successful in its representation of World War I, it's certainly not realistic. We can argue about its authenticity in individual elements, but, but more like, I think it is successful in that it is a blockbuster so-called AAA FPS that does represent the brutality of a war in a pretty honest way, especially if you look at the campaign. But I, I would argue even in multiplayer, um, there's kind of a, a pretty sincere depiction of how impersonal and brutal the death of your, your own character again and again and everybody else is. It's, there's kind of a minimum of glorification, I would say, compared to something like Call of Duty, compared to previous battlefields. Uh, it, it doesn't really force the feeling of cool war on you too much or more than it has to. And I think that's pretty admirable for a game developed by one of the biggest publishers in the world. That's that's an interesting point about the overall tone of the game because I I sort of was having the same reaction uh, as I was thinking about how we want to discuss this game. I almost didn't feel like I had to in a lot of aspects draw a sharp line between the campaign and the multiplayer because there's a weird uh, like continuity of tone uh, in, in some ways, and I think a lot of that might just be uh, pure aesthetics. Um, World War, like World War One, is presented in in this campaign. Like no matter where you are, is um, it takes place in a beautiful yet ruined world. Uh, I think, and and every map sort of reinforces that, right? So like, you know, there are moments, and the weather sort of shifts in, in a lot of these maps, right? Like, uh, you'll you'll have dust storms blow up in the desert, and suddenly everyone's like sort of ghosts walking around in this. Uh, in, in this haze, uh, and then the sun breaks through, and it's, you know, this, like, perfect, crisp, clear day, uh, and it's, it's a lot of, like, there's a lot of, like, gorgeous natural beauty, there's a lot of, like, uh, gorgeous settings uh, in, in this game, both in the campaign and, and the multiplayer, uh, and yet all of it is sort of touched and scarred and, and marked by war uh, in, in a way that I find really curiously, uh, really, really, like, successful, at, at sort of e evoking, I think, this, this feeling of, uh, you know, regretful nostalgia, uh, almost, uh, for, for, for a world that's been, that's been lost. Uh, you know, even, even, when you're, even when you're on, like, a sick kill streak or something, uh, you know, in, in a shattered, like, uh, French or Belgian city, and just, like, mowing down, uh, you know, enemy players, um, you're, you're still really, like, hyper-aware of the fact that 
you know, you were huddled up behind like a ruined uh, streetcar track, right? And you are like firing rounds into a group of storefronts. It's all very, uh, every, every, every setting almost like sort of tells a story of like what's been lost here. I think what often makes it even more affecting is in a lot of maps, uh, the maps actually begin in quite good condition. Uh, particularly, I think that some of the, the French maps, which are, are dotted with all these kind of um, attractive villages and towns. And at first, it's quite nice. They're, they're empty. There's this eeriness of this kind of ghost town where all the civilians have kind of fled because war has kind of erupted. At, but there's lots of places to hide in. You feel quite safe. But then ha- halfway through that match in, in multiplayer, that town is, is not going to look anything like that anymore. Buildings are going to be completely b- just scattered across roads, just bricks, just everywhere, smoke. Uh, just It's awful. Corpses. It, it's very... It feels very much like war has really happened while you've been there. It's not like you've come in the middle of this. You're actually there throughout the entire timeline uh, and seeing this once beautiful place torn apart. And it's quite devastating, both visually and emotionally. I think the gas grenade in particular is something that stands out to me as, as something that, you know, you can argue about, okay, not every character, not every soldier carried around a gas grenade that they could throw 50 meters, you know, across the <laughs> battlefield and disperse this amount of, you know, realism aside. Um, you know, when you hit somebody with a gas grenade, you're getting these constant notifications, just as when you're damaging anybody, that you're inflicting damage. There's, a, you know, that reticule kind of spark mm-hmm. in the middle of your screen. These points are being counted up, I think, in a pretty modest way for games that count points in the middle of your screen. And you're getting these notifications that essentially you're, you're killing someone, you're asphyxiating someone as that's happening. And, like, you know, it's up to you how you sort of receive that. But... That struck, and just like the effect of the gas, it's re- very disorienting. It really blurs your vision. It's green. Every character has access to a gas mask. If you hit the T key, uh, if you're playing on PC, um, that basically makes you immune to the smoke, and but but you lose the ability to sort of go down iron sights. So there's a cost to that. And sort of, and there, I think there's a general bulkiness to a lot of the equipment that's really interesting. Yes. But yeah, in general, the that was one of the things that struck with me, like. In another game, I would have been like, yeah, I got that guy. But in certain moments in Battlefield, I'm like, damn, I probably sucked. Because I know what it's like to to strangle, basically, under under gas. Yeah, I I mean, I think it's, um, I I think it's like, it's just that this this game seems to, like, seems very matter-of-fact. Uh, about about everything uh and, and so it's it's kind of a weird like it, it's it's still a, a fun game i am enjoying i'm enjoying playing it but it is kind of like oddly joyless uh about your you know your your feats uh as it were so it's like it's rare that like when the, when this when the little ticker is flashing like you know you're damaging enemies i don't know it's just it it just you're it's it's feedback but it's not it, it it's not like this you know congratulations soldier it's it's not doing some sort of like ridiculous peggle thing right where There's it's no like guitar riff. yeah <laughs> sick asphyxiation <laughs> uh yeah i mean i think that's definitely part of it i do think um some of these settings as well like it is it is kind of a ridiculous uh vision of world war one in, in a lot of places like both in the campaign and the multiplayer like uh i i think like it had already been like towing the line quite a bit between like just between um 
like vague plausibility and just complete ridiculousness. I think the second campaign uh, in which your character is being court-martialed in England and the court-martial's interrupted by a German bombing raid uh, and he and his bro grab a plane, go up, like start single-handedly fighting off the German like Zeppelin raid, crash land on top of the Zeppelin and engage in a fist fight with the Germans. <laughs> like that, that was when I was like, okay, we've, uh, we, we, we've jumped, we've jumped the shark a little bit, uh, quite a bit as, as a matter of fact. Um, yeah, but, yeah. I mean, there's, there's definitely moments like that. I mean, it, it definitely embraces its Hollywoodness. Um, it, it's not so restrained, but you think about just the first mission in the game where you're, you're changing, you're playing different characters as you die. I think that's tremendously impactful and brave. Uh, it, it, it's it's a kind of tone that I, th- I don't think we've seen since something like Spec Ops, frankly, in, in a sort of a shooter from a big publisher. So I feel like sort of it does manage to strike this balance between being, I guess, respectful um, or as, as much as a kind of triple a historical shooter can be uh while also i know you were both saying that you weren't really sure if you weren't finding it you weren't finding much joy in it i on the other hand actually i have it's still got the sort of you know when i take out a tank and nobody escapes that tank so i've gotten maybe five kills i feel pretty good about myself i mean i might feel a bit bad afterwards but in the heat of the moment i feel like i've just i've done something important i've helped out my side and i've taken out players who are probably a lot better than me because i'm absolutely terrible at battlefield one but i i do feel that there's feedback that can make you feel quite good um and then on the other uh, on the other side of things when you're under fire and when you're just freaking out there is a certain kind of exhilaration when when you just panic for instance when when uh, anyone gets a flamethrower and you're just oh, in a boy. room with with four other people and suddenly all you see is fire and men screaming and you're on fire and it's spreading that panic it's like i mean it, for a moment, you know, I forget that I, I really can just run out the door and I might actually live and it will all be okay. Because in that second, all I focused on is the carnage and how terrified I am. Um, and that actually makes me enjoy it more because I feel very much, I feel very much there in the moment. Uh, and I think that that's something that some of the, the, the modern battlefields didn't quite give me that same feeling where it, and star wars battlefront did a little bit but i think that was a lot of the actual kind of fandom and the fact that they kind of pandered to the fans in a lot of ways uh, so it's kind of just exciting to play in these places where uh you know i'm familiar with from the movies but in this it was just i i was a very kind of i, I don't want to use the word but i'm going to say visceral experience um so yeah, i did find joy in it so there, there's a couple things there i, I want to dig into uh one is that there are certain there are certain things that are just completely and utterly uh, terrifying in in this game, and one of them is is the flamethrower. Uh, because if you're anywhere near uh, the soldier with the flamethrower, uh, you are in very deep trouble. Uh, it is it you know like there there are there are modest manageable flamethrowers out there in games. Uh, this is not one of them. Uh, this is, you know, this is like an, a lake of fire uh, is sort of being cast by this one character. And if you're in that, if you're in that pretty wide cone, um, you're, you're, you're in, you're in deep shit. And 
it sort of hit this point for me where like if I hear that um whatever the sound it is right I, I, maybe it's the maybe it's the 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 pressure action through the hose uh maybe it's the the igniter I don't know but you, you know that sort of whoosh you hear um it's not the it's not it's not the sort of the roar of the flames but you can hear the mechanism working the moment I hear that I just like get like my stomach drops and I'm like, I need to get away from that sound. And you can't get away immediately, like, the battlefield changes, and it turns into this, like, freaking, like, scary-ass Where's Waldo of where is the person with this weapon? You know what I mean? And immediately, like, you're discarding, you're seeing other people running around, not wrong silhouette, don't care. Where is the person with the goddamn flamethrower? Uh, <laughs> which I, I really I really kind of like. Uh, it's, it's an interesting... Um, you know, sort of approach to the to to the super weapon, but I just mostly like the uh, weird emotional texture uh, it, je- it injects into the middle of a middle of a game, and really changes what your priorities are for a couple for for a minute or two. It feels more than just a weapon. There's it's elemental and primal, uh, and when you actually see the fire spray, it doesn't look like it's coming out of any sort of gun. No, it is more. It's like some sort of god has just appeared in the battlefield and decided to wipe out multiple squads. Yeah, uh, it's horrifying because you do just see every single person just scatter and, and it lingers, the, the, like it sticks oh, it does, and yeah. burns doorways, it, like. Oh, if you get caught in a room, you're you're in a lot of trouble. And of course, because the sound design in this game oh my is God. It, it's second to none. It is incredible. I mean, put some earphones on when you're playing no. this. And Play it on 5.1 surround, my friend. Or, or that. Yes, <laughs> if you can do that, do that. Um, because when you just hear all of these people shouting and screaming and you hear the roar of the flame and the swoosh of it coming out... It's just, you're there, basically, and very, very scared. I think something something else, though, that, that I do appreciate here, and maybe this contributes to the feeling of vulnerability, is that um, I feel like in multiplayer shooters, there's been a trend toward all guns sort of fulfilling the same roles, uh, and almost equally well. Uh, so, like, that that might be a bit of a gross exaggeration, but for instance, like I can almost play a sniper role in a modern battle, modern set battlefield game uh, using a machine gun. I just sort of can change the optics I put on it, and I, I choose a machine gun with a with a, with a long range and, and low damage fall off, uh, and I can still basically hang back and and sort of operate like a sniper, sort of like a support gunner, uh, or I can use that same machine gun, change the optics, and basically become a like you know close quarters uh, you know assault machine gunner. Rolls are rolls are really like uh, fungible uh, in that game, and a lot of rifles start to feel uh, the same after a while, um, which I think in part also reflects the fact that uh, you know firearm science continues to evolve and it does converge on like manageability and predictability uh, and and firepower. Um, weapons in this game don't function like that. Uh, they they don't they don't fulfill a ton of roles really successfully and a lot of times they feel like um to some degree they're they're also fighting with you they're working against you like uh, I really like my Lewis gun I finally had this breakthrough uh this this past week where I finally figured out like how to really like how to really like get get right with the Lewis gun um and and I finally started like performing well with it but man it took me a while because like the gun is freaking huge. If you go to if you go to iron sights, um, 
you don't really have good optics. You basically just got you just got you got iron sights, uh, and sort of the um, the sight picture is really limited. Most of what you see down the sights is just the huge like ammo drum sitting on top of the gun, and then this like tiny little like you know pinhole uh, that that gives you a chance to see like what you're shooting at. It's a it's a really like restrictive. Um, and sort of difficult to use weapon, and it feels like it's sort of trying to uh, work against your ability to to see see what's happening around you. Every time you're using it to its best advantage, you feel insanely vulnerable. Uh, and I think that kind of is of a piece with a lot of the weapons in this game. I think every gun, almost every gun, has an interesting limitation. I think that's what defines them. And it's really successful in this context because, you know, on, on the one hand, it's a battlefield game. You have to feel cool and empowered and... You have a sense of scale and spectacle. It's a 64-player game. Um, but so, so, so the guns can't shoot like shit. You know, they can't just, like, miss randomly. That's not the kind of effect you want to have the player uh, the player to have. But it's part of it is, yeah, in the pure aesthetics, they're clunky, they're, they're bulky, they're these piles of brass and iron and wood. There's a sense that some of them are, like, prototypes and very untested. But, yeah, it, like you said, Rob, it mainly takes the place of um, the optics and how, like, occluded your screen is. When you go into iron sights, you know, a lot of the uh, gun emplacements, for example, you're basically shooting through this, like, tiny vertical uh, view screen um, trying to find somebody. You're really paying a huge price in your peripheral vision for jumping into this very powerful piece of artillery. Um, but otherwise, yeah, most of the magazines are super shallow. So getting two kills on a single magazine with most weapons feels like a big achievement. Um, you know, we... Over on PC Gamer last year, we did an article actually talking to someone who works at a National World War One museum about basically like fact checking the weaponry and different historical aspects. And for the most part, like they seem to like uh, how how the game handles stuff like that. Like they mostly nitpicked at like how certain guns were reloaded or uniform details and stuff like that. But for the most part, like these are weapons that existed in some form, either you know even if it's at like the very end of the war. Um, yeah, I, I simply think this is the most interesting infantry game Battlefield has ever had. Um, and I think, you know, what you were touching on at the beginning there, Rob, where <clears throat> weapons in, in many shooters, but especially Battlefield, are so interchangeable. It's something I've been long critical of in the series, where there are just a, a huge number of downsides to that kind of weapon design, where Battlefield 4 had 19 assault rifles, okay? And... You know, again, like you're saying, like once you once you tack on all those attachments and optics and like a grenade launcher and a silencer and a foregrip and all you know all this stuff, they their personality shifts even further from what they originally were, and you end up with just like everybody's assault rifle, everybody's sniper rifle, kind of is the same sort of thing. You know, whether it's and, and the variance is mainly like rate of fire, damage drop off, and stuff like that. But generally, it's like a really fast, powerful, accurate thing with very few limitations. And a lot of that is because, you know, EA wants players to unlock a lot of stuff. That's a big part of the, the appeal of the game. You have just this huge kind of library of weapons. But if you compare it to a game like Counter-Strike, uh, a very intimate, like, five-on-five -five shooter where an individual kill means, like, you're 20% closer to victory often, um, you know, holding an AK-47 has intense meaning in that game context. It means, okay, you're holding the only assault rifle in the game that can deal a one-shot headshot and like everybody knows that that's like a big factor um in, in game balancing but you know i don't think battlefield one 
approaches that level of you know the weapons having personality having having like a real identity when i'm facing down a madsen mg like uh, that triggers certain feelings and strategic ideas in me i don't really have that but it at least it at least gives them distinct personalities in your hands you know they're going to behave a little bit differently i think you know you the lmgs in particular all have like a different magazine mechanism you know whether it's that like lateral typewriter feed or like a vertical magazine or kind of a drum magazine. They have, they have like very interesting different silhouettes. It helps distinguish them and makes them more memorable. I think that's very useful. Um, and there's just fewer of them, which I think is a great decision. And certainly I, I feel that when you look at the weapons with each class, they make each class feel far more distinct. Uh, as uh, when I'm playing assault, I'm I'm not going to be taking pot shots from miles away. I have to get into the action as quickly as possible. Maybe find a vehicle to blow up because that's really kind of my goal. Um, but it's about closing that gap as as quickly as possible and and making sure I'm always in cover because when I am charging in trying to find someone to just spray with bullets, I'm a big target for any of the scouts that are just like in a prone position, just waiting for me to come out into the open. Uh, but what you both were mentioning about the um, the kind of limiting of your vision that seems to really define Battlefield One. It's always trying to find different ways to limit what you can see of the battlefield, whether that's flames and explosions and smoke or weather effects or gas um, or the guns that you use. And especially when you're in a tank, for instance, it's you have all your field of view is just tiny. Uh, you really are looking at a small rectangle, really. And that can be even more uh, infuriating sometimes when you are seeing the damage coming at different sides and you where you are you are not able to do anything you have to rely on your your fellow passengers to take these threats out um so you really have to rely on people quite a lot because you are only ever seeing this absolutely tiny portion of the battle yeah i think in general, there is this feeling of like claustrophobia, and I think maybe this is why the game succeeds at evoking uh, some of the like you know emotional texture uh, that it's going for. Is that um, you know I think in a lot of in, in a lot of games, like it's not just that like uh, knowledge visibility is power, but it's also security, right? Like you can if you the more you can see, the better you feel because like you have like great situational awareness. Battlefield, I think, in most places is actively trying to work against that. Um, more so than I would say other games. Like, my memories of uh, Battlefield 3, for instance, are largely, like, these really expansive vistas uh, that, you, that you were fighting across. And I think part of that was maybe driven by a desire to showcase a really powerful, like, graphics engine. So, like, it always looked spectacular, and it always looked like you were fighting across... Um, you know, just these amazing, like, you know, valleys and fields and deserts. Uh, here, it always feels like the battlefield's cut up in all these little, all these little segments. Uh, if you go into, if you're involved in, like, heavy street fighting, uh, it's just utterly terrifying because you have no idea where the threats are. Um, there are all these side streets and, like, alleys or just holes, holes through the buildings uh, that you know people can use to flank. Um, it's, it's hard to see what's going on. It's actually very rare in this game that you can park yourself anywhere and really get a good sense of, of what's, of what's going on. And I also think 
and this is this is where I start to run into some problems with this game. I feel like Battlefield 1 is designed to make squads and teammates very dependent on each other. Um, it takes a village to bring down, for instance, a landship tank. Um, it takes a lot of like collaboration to like be an effective group uh, in the middle of street fighting. Like I've started to like realize you sort of do need to stick together, but you also do need to see like what angles people are covering and then cover different angles. Um, otherwise things can go wrong really fast. And when you've got a squad that, that works, it's, it, it's re it's really quite a lot of fun. The problem is it often feels to me at least, uh, like a lot of the, the threshold for, uh, or that the bar for cooperation is, is actually pretty high, uh, in a lot of settings. Like the team that has a tank and a modicum of teamwork is just gonna, it's just going to roll through, uh, the team that, that can't really get its, its act together. Uh, on that front. And so I do find that there are these weirdly, um, it's, it, it's kind of a, it's kind of a frustration because a lot of times like as an individual player, like I'm not exactly sure, like, okay, what am I supposed to do here? Because it feels like we're not really addressing this new threat effectively. Um, you know, like there's a Zeppelin that's come onto the battlefield and our team keeps driving off in tanks and not getting aircraft to go shoot it down. Uh, but now there are no vehicles left. So, you know, I guess that Zeppelin is just going to be roaming free. Or there's or there's a giant ass tank sort of steamrolling the objectives. And for some reason, everyone's still like running around with sniper rifles and it actually requires multiple people to work together to maybe ambush and destroy that tank. And that doesn't necessarily always happen organically. I don't know. That's just a, that's a feeling I get with this game is that it, it drives toward this like cooperative element, and it can be really powerful and rewarding when that works. Uh, but when there isn't that level of cooperation, this can be a really lopsided or frustrating game. It's weird. It's weird when people don't cooperate though, because there are so many. Uh... Not just the advantages of where, like, if you're all working as a cohesive group, you're just going to do better, but there are much more clear advantages. Like, if you've got a squad commander that is setting targets and you achieve those objectives that have been laid out by your squad commander, you get actual tangible benefits. So when people ignore their squad commander or when you get a squad commander who just doesn't really set any objectives or try to keep the team together... I'm like, well, why are you even playing? Because you are missing a fundamental aspect of the game. It's not that kind of shooter where it's every man for himself. It's all about individual glory. You can't win a match without teamwork. Yeah, I think it's a big shortcoming of the, the voice chat, for one thing. Um, on PC, and I'm guessing this is also the case on console, you can only talk to your squad on voice chat. It's intentionally limited. And like... On the one hand, man, Battlefield 1 would probably be a really miserable experience if I had 31 other people yelling at me over voice chat that I had individually mute and manage, you know? That sounds really unpleasant. But your the reach of your leadership is five people, including yourself, I believe. So your opportunity right. to organize and execute is significantly limited. You can type in, in team chat, but I think that doesn't pop up by default. I think people have to also type in team chat in order to see it or something. No, I think it is it's default, but it I think the problem is people turn it off because who wants to be called a noob forty times in a match? I mean that's the problem, is like <laughs> I, I hear I'm complaining about cooperation, but I'm gonna be straight up. Uh I also turned off uh chat notifications because like 
basically 80% of the time it was like guys ragging on each other or actual hate speech. Um, and nice. also there's no, there doesn't seem to be much in the way of like reporting, uh, options, uh, in this game. So like, yeah, you know, somebody isn't, uh, you know, repairing a tank to the tank driver's, uh, you know, satisfaction, uh, that tank driver just feels completely free to use like racist or anti-Semitic slurs and everyone just like, I guess we should repair that tank. And I'm like, cool. Awesome. Great. This is, this is fun. So I just turned that off. Cause I really don't. If you want, like, I'm, you know, I'm just trying to enjoy my World yeah. War One power fantasy, and these people <laughs> keep bringing in the Nazi slurs. Yeah, there are there are a few like period appropriate slurs that I've experienced. That's been, I guess, a good th- no, not good at all. <laughs> They're um, making the extra effort to be insulting. Yeah, exactly. No, but, no, um, I'm just role playing a bigoted Southern American officer <laughs> okay. from 1918. I don't see what your problem is. But Rob, I would really encourage you to play operations mode. I don't know how much time you spent with that. I did. But, um, oh my goodness. We got to talk good. about operations. Yeah. Because I think it's one of the best things that happened in shooters in 2016, first of all. But I also think it is a mode that deeply addresses addresses as much as anything in Battlefield 1 does. Some of the things that you're talking about and a lot of long-standing weaknesses in this series. So conquest mode. Conquest mode is like the you know, standard capture the flags, battlefield mode. Um, in battlefield, I think there's as many as seven objectives, different flags kind of scattered across the map. And you're simply trying to have as many as possible as you own those flags, you accrue points. If you reach uh, 750 points, you win. But, you know, I really dislike conquest mode. I, I think it's miserable most of the time because I feel like I'm just running between those different points, putting out different fires. There's no fixed spawns positions. There's rarely a feeling of like a front line that I break through and there's a sense of progress and, and momentum and, and history within a match. It's just sort of very chaotic and random, but what, um, what operations mode does, I mean, we should talk about the historical aspect of it too, because that framing is really interesting, but it's, it's still up to 64 players. So the scale is huge, but those 64 players are usually focused on just two or three control points at a time. And then once those two or three control points are captured by the attackers, and, and there is an attacking and a defending team, so it's asymmetrical in that way, you know, those points are basically forgotten, and you move on to a new sector, which has two or three whole new control points. So the defenders are retreating. There's literally a retreating phase, um, and the attackers are sort of ad- advancing forward. And I think probably most interestingly, you know, as the attackers fail, so say they run out of their sort of respawn tickets, uh, for for a phase, they get multiple like two more attempts basically to a- attempt that attack, and they retain their progress. So they don't start off from the very beginning. They say they they are able to like you know bulldoze two uh, sectors. Uh, they would retain their progress and continue again, and actually usually get a behemoth unit on their side to start that match to sort of hopefully push them over the hump that they couldn't get over before. So I think it sort of has the, it has the scale of conquest mode, 64 players. You can also play it with 40, but usually 64, but it has the focus most importantly, like of rush mode, which is the 12 on 12 mode of battlefield. You're just focused on a couple control points at a time. It's really clear what you have to do. Um, You're not sort of spread all over the map. You don't have a lot of vehicles. And um, I think the game really benefits and shines in that context. It's a it's a campaign as well because there's like more than one map, uh, so you're often yeah, they're sort of chained together. 
Yeah, so it's like this whole wartime narrative uh, where you're maybe you've lost the first one and you're just like trying to get back to strength in the second one. And it's like by the third one, if you just failed the last two, you're just so miserable and desperate and hoping that the underdogs can win. And I mean, the, the scale truly is impressive. I think this is the successor to Rush Mode uh, in a lot of ways, which seems a little more chaotic and random uh, than I remember it. Like, I always used to prefer Rush Mode, uh, going back to like Bad Company 2. Uh, I think this uh, these operations sort of supplant that because like, the scale and sweep of these things is is really quite stunning. Like Each sector is basically a multiplayer map in itself, right? Like. It's a, it's a rush game within itself. It's huge. The points are spread uh, really far apart so that, like, you really sort of have to pick where you're going to be on this battle and commit to it because, you know, like you said, unlike in Domination or something like that, you can't you can't sort of fire brigade around very easily and deal with each problem as it comes up. You, you've really got to, like, you know, fight your, fight your sector, uh, your part of the front. And trust the team. Trust your team to sort of go handle the rest. And these maps, as you're sort of as it moves sector by sector, the battlefield really, really changes. Like it's it's all recognizably sort of the same overall like setting or geography, but the you know tactical landscape uh, changes quite a bit. Like you start out in you know the 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 the, the starting sector is just uh, standard like frontline stuff. Uh, trenches, bunkers, foxholes, and then you're driven through the grounds of this like massive palace, um, and then you're fighting in the palace, um, which you know is is this really incredible and different uh, feeling. Suddenly, uh, you're no longer on a classic World War One battlefield. You're playing almost this weird um, control point deathmatch inside like something that looks a lot like Versailles, uh, and then you're driven out of there. And you're sort of, you know, in this last stand, um, you know, this last stand Alamo in the, uh, you know, in, in, in the palace grounds, in the palace garden. And there's also a Zeppelin now flying overhead because somebody's getting their ass kicked. Uh, so now a Zeppelin has arrived uh, to, to come help the attackers out. And it's really, it's, it's really something. It feels... Uh, huge and expansive and and exciting and uh you know you mentioned that you, you didn't like um you, you didn't like conquest in a lot of ways because it doesn't really like tell a story and I, I know exactly what you mean because like over the course of an operation you have like dramatic sagas unfold in certain corners of the battlefield right like oh there's that time like we were completely getting rolled but then they were like holding the palace ballroom for like 20 minutes uh, against assault after assault and like tanks are just pounding it. Uh, the, the palace is burning basically by the end. Uh, and yet like this, this group of this, this one squad just like would not be driven out and like it's stalemated for like 20 minutes there. Uh, and then they were finally like successfully stormed by like, you know, flamethrowers and, and uh, storm troops. It's really, really cool. You, you have these moments, these, these sort of memories that get created uh, within these operations. I think Battlefield 1 definitely, it's one of the rare blockbuster shooters to really encourage you to die on the objective. It doesn't do this in a very loud way. It's, it's kind of silent, but it's often the right way to play the game. You know, by running in, bayoneting somebody, getting a shotgun kill, causing as much chaos as possible with, with your, your act of death, basically, and bravery and sacrifice in order to sort of, you know, 
make an incision in, in an enemy line and enemy defense because there are those like amazingly defensible areas in certain maps. Ballroom Blitz that you mentioned, like the last point there. I guess it's not the last point. It's like next to the last. next to last point. Yeah. yeah. So that's an, like a massively impregnable. If you're playing that map, you know what I'm talking about. Like it's it's really easy to defend. It's this square enclosed structure. You can't get mortars into it. You can't really get tanks on the attacking side in there very easily. And um, it, you know, it, it, it's 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 an achievement for me. You know, it's it's what I want to see more of in these kind of games produced by big publishers, where it's not you know as much as the game is very like much measuring and rewarding your kill death ratio, and that's a pretty prominent within the experience. Often, like the right way to play it is by not caring about that and just rushing in and getting yourself killed in, in the most effective way possible. I feel that um, you were you were talking, Rob, about some of the the kind of the narrative moments, the emergent narratives that happen. Um, there's also more overt ones as well in operations because between each map is uh, a little cutscene and a little bit of storytelling as well, trying to kind of put it in the historical or alt historical context. So it means that when you actually do find, when you arrive in that map and you, you know, join your squad, you you sort of know what you're facing and why it's important that you win like you know why the ottomans are trying to defeat the brits in the suez canal and things like that it gives it a little bit of back historical backstory and i i feel that it encourages players a little bit more um because it feels like the stakes are a little bit more real when you actually know why you're here killing all of these people or more likely being killed by a lot of these people well battlefield historically has been a game that has has no doesn't care at all about who you are if you look back at battlefield 4 and the previous games like yes you're playing as a faction like you have a costume i guess but battlefield 4 for example the americans and the chinese have access to the same equipment there's no there's no asymmetry represented there in, in their sort of strategic identity but here although that's that's also the case you know the, the germans and italians and whoever whatever faction you're fighting on they have access to the same equipment which is strange, but you at least get a sense of who is the winner and the loser. Like it'll even say if if the Austro-Hungarians win, um, I think in in Monte Grappa, for example, uh, it'll say like we can only speculate if this had actually happened. You know, the the other side would have had to defend in this way and that way, and it at least gives you that historical context, which I think is I don't know surprising and really effective. Well, it certainly feels like there's there's a ton of character. Like I, I find myself weirdly attached to the Turkish army, uh, for instance, because their uh, their battle dress is so much more. Um, they're they're so much they're, they're such like they look lighter weight uh, than their than their Western uh, adversaries, right? Like the the Brit the British Tommies are all like you know weighed down with you know helmets and and gear and a lot of time like you know turkish troops are you know wearing a very light battle dress and uh it just it, it, it and a lot of times they, they they're also i think functioning as as the defender uh in, in a lot of places but just it, it gives it gives this weird uh this, this weird feeling of like uh you know them sort of being the, the the plucky underdog uh you know standing up against this this massive um you know this massive military machine, um, especially like it's it's definitely surprising when when I get bayoneted uh, by, by a Turkish soldier uh, as I'm setting up my machine gun. Um, I, I, I think I think 
real, real quick, yeah. one of the one of the best expressions we haven't really talked about Rising Storm, yeah. but one of the best expressions of that kind of faction identity I've ever seen in a, in a multiplayer sixty four player FPS, yeah, <clears throat> is in Rising Storm. I mean, this was a game back in twenty thirteen, so it's pretty old at this point. But there's a second one, Seven Vietnam, coming out soon. Um, but so yeah, Americans versus Japanese forces. There are a lot of points of asymmetry. I mean, the, the fact that the Japanese in the Rising Storm games, and this is developed by Tripwire, uh, an, an independent studio down in Georgia, they're best known for like Killing Floor, Killing Floor 2. But the the Japanese side all had had like one or two automatic weapons. It was mostly bolt-action weapons for one thing. So that's like an immensely brave thing for that developer to try and balance yeah. and try and make it possible, where the Americans are, yeah, they have the BAR, they have the Grand, you know, and the Japanese are mostly running around with these bayonet bolt action rifles. But I think the single most interesting point of asymmetry in that game is this this mechanic called the bonsai charge, where at any moment, Japanese soldiers can join a bonsai charge. And you have to equip your melee weapon, and you basically, you like hold down the, the sprint button or the melee button or something, and you charge in, sprinting in, in sort of a, a committed amount of time like say five or six seconds you have to maintain your sprint until you collide with an enemy or something almost actually like toward the objective too if i recall yeah that's right but the more people who join a bonsai charge the greater its radius of effect is so a bonsai charge like emanates some amount of like disruption of the enemy's accuracy and it sort of rattles there's there's a little bit of screen shake or something as well i think so you're, you're basically rewarded for being brave and suicidal in a way that is unique to your faction and that you have to commit and organize your team around in order to execute well. Like if you do this alone, you're probably going to get shot immediately and, and die. It's, it's, it's still an interesting act of player expression, but I don't know. It'll be interesting to see because there are a lot of things you could say Battlefield has borrowed from this series, Rising mm -hmm. Storm. Um, it'll be interesting to see like how the future, and even perhaps Battlefield 1 DLC might express some of these points of asymmetry. Yeah, I... Um... Definitely, like the the charge. I haven't played around with it too much because it seems like it's more individualized. Uh, the the charge mechanic. Uh, I also haven't really been able to figure out like what suppression is really doing in this game. Like when I'm an, when I'm a machine gunner, I am like getting credit for like suppression assists. But as far as I can tell, there's no real like serious suppression effects that are being employed against me uh, in the game. Um, Except for the you know general just chaos of the battlefield, which sort of keeps me you know on my toes and my head down in in a lot of cases, but I haven't really like Red Orchestra really has a pronounced suppression mechanic, right? Like keeping like it, it's very it's very it's very uh, matter of fact that there are no super soldiers who will stand up in the middle of a hail of gunfire and calmly take aim. That that's pretty rare. It doesn't really happen. Suppression works. Um, which is actually really cool because then it does like give. It doesn't make everyone to like a superhero marksman uh, on the battlefield. There's a lot of value and importance attached to just firing to be firing and uh, keeping keeping the enemy's head down. So I'm curious, like, I don't know, have you have you have you noticed like have you figured out what suppression is really doing in Battlefield? I think it might be psycho partially psychological um, because I ha I've seen just as you have the little thing that where if someone dies but I've not killed them but I've been spraying them with uh, machine gun fire that I get a suppression bonus it gets added to my my score at the end um, 
but I'm I'm never a hundred percent sure what I'm doing other than the kind of basic I'm just covering this area in bullets in the hope that if someone peeks their head out they're gonna die or they just won't peek their head out. Um, so I've just been treating it as like I'm trying to use suppression realistically without actually knowing how it works mechanically. So, so allegedly there there is like you know, the game claims according to what's what's visible online like it does Im- impede your aim you will suffer from increased spreads with the spread of distribution mm. of your bullets as you're firing scope sway but impaired healing it even says and altered vision but i, I really don't I don't. those things are like very muted in my opinion they, they've probably been dialed back from maybe an original form i think it's mainly out of desire for battlefield to just give you points at any opportunity yeah <laughs> well and especially because like, in this game like if you're under suppressing fire, you're impeded in that you can't put your head out and take aim for very long. So, like, you're going, you know what I mean? You're not going to be able to steady your scope because, literally, you can only, like, you know, do, like, quick, fl- you know, flip shots. Um, yeah, I, I, ju- I do want to call the, the just one more thing about the sound design, too. It's just, I find it so uncanny, the nuances of, like, the interaction of weapon sounds and setting. In this game, like, Ballroom Blitz is where I really noticed it the most. As I was sort of, like, walking machine gun fire, uh, like, up to, like, I saw somebody through, like, a large casement window. I start opening fire as I walk toward the casement. And the quality of the echo starts to change. Like, it's so, it is so intensely granular. I don't fully get, like, what alchemy they are pulling off to, to accomplish this. But, like, somehow... A weapon sighted within like a concrete casement sounds incredibly different from a weapon that's like a foot outside that casement, which sounds completely different from one just stand, like in 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 an open in an open area. It's a really like really intensely um, you know sonically impressive game. It's it's really stunning. Yeah, the tinnitus too. Obviously, that's like a really evocative World War One World War Two effect in particular. Um, if you get hit by a mortar, you're going to lose a few seconds of hearing. And then the way the screams like slowly emerge and kind of filter back in, uh, as you're regaining your hearing, I think is really effective. And it just has a sense of fidelity. You know, it's not sort of a, an effect. It's, it's much more than it. It feels simulated. Does, does it sort of seem like, um, speaking of like mortars and like anti-tank weapons and such, um, it seems like they dialed the destructibility way back up. Uh, from from previous yeah. games, like it used to be, like if I was in a if I was in a town, I could take cover in a building and I'd be like reasonably okay for for a minute or two. Like it, it took a while to like dismantle a building. Usually, like you know, holes might appear in the structure, but like it wasn't like the entire thing like fell the you know fell apart on top of me. Boy, does this feel like a game where uh, it, you know if the street fighting is proving too difficult, just pull out a mortar or anti tank rocket launcher. And just start leveling buildings um, to the point where, like, I'm terrified to step, set foot inside a building uh, at this point in a in a really hotly contested like urban map uh, because it's just it's just a death trap. Uh, at any moment, the ceiling is going to come down on you. Uh, anyone else notice this? Yeah, big time. I mean, it's a great way to uh, stop people from becoming camping snipers because really, you find a good building, no one's around. You've got a good vantage point. You kill a few people and then you get the hell out. Because if anyone knows that you're there, you might not find yourself in a building anymore, but under a pile of rubble. 
but it's um the terrain deformation is really impressive as well like if you're playing on like one of the desert maps if you're hiding behind a dune you might find that the top of that <laughs> dune suddenly vanishes and you're just like lying there in open view and you're very quickly dealt with so it's often you kind of feel quite confident that you're very well hidden but absolutely everything in that game can suddenly just vanish or be blown up. And the way that new craters and pits appear, creating cover where there wasn't cover before, it's, yeah, it's bizarre. And the, the map really does just evolve. Uh, and I think you feel that way more in, like, the, the kind of the longer sort of conquest and operations games. You're just seeing this transformation before your very eyes and reassessing all of your tactics because suddenly this town that you felt quite safe in isn't really a town anymore it's like a wall and maybe yeah. a ladder and that's it that's good i mean it gives it gives certain battles and flashpoints different phases right where the weapons that are effective when there is a house or, or a barrier or uh some other emplacement here you know that's going to change when, when those things are eliminated and now suddenly it's like much more open you can see across this capture point to where the enemies hunkered down. You're going to want to sort of change your weapon set, which you can do on the fly between spawns. So yeah, it promotes like a sense of history and progression throughout a battle, as well as, you know, giving you the idea to change your weapon set basically, and giving you more opportunities to deal with those pesky snipers who are on the second floor story. I mean, I think we all play those kind of shooters. Day yeah. of Defeat comes to mind where one guy in a window can just sit there for half the match or something and be effective and it's nice to be able to deal with that thanks to some good engine technology the amount of times i've like run up a flight of stairs thinking this is a great build and i'm gonna take out so many people before you even get to the top of the stairs it's like oh wait the top of this building's gone <laughs> it's oh, like just like, while i was walking through it a lot of times like i'll find a really desirable building i'll be running up to the stairs and i'll find like a teammate like setting up a machine gun in a window and just like happily blazing away and i'm like well this place is about to explode in about three seconds <laughs> so i'm just gonna i'm just gonna find somewhere else bro yeah, they, they occasionally become platforming challenges, too. I've had issues yes. where, like, oh, yeah. I need to, like, jump across a broken staircase, and that feels, like, very interesting in an emergent way um, in order to revive somebody up there or something. Well, so I love that you'll have a floor collapse under you. Like, you'll be, you'll yes. be, like, setting up, and then suddenly, like, there'll be a huge explosion, and your character will be tumbling out into the street through the gaping hole that just opened up in the floor and the side of the building, uh, which, is, which is really nifty. Um, I do kind of wish, as, as I play this though, like going back to the teamwork thing, I do kind of wish it had taken, or, or at least there was a mode uh, that sort of echoed what, what Red Orchestra and Rising Storm do, uh, which is that like Red Orchestra 2 sort of enforces a degree of, um, uh, of, of realism or uh, in terms of like, arm, like unit composition. Like you can't have eight machine gunners in your platoon. That's just not how units were, were formed. It, it doesn't happen. So to a degree, like I can see what would frustrate a lot of players. You're playing a game and it's like, Oh, sorry, you're, you're late. So all we've got left for you are the bolt action rifles. You're, you're a grunt. Someone else is the officer. Someone else gets to be working the SMG and someone else is the, you know, the light machine gunner. But I find that what's really cool is once you accept that limitation, red orchestra becomes a game about, really enforced teamwork you know what i mean you you really do now need to play your role and know how to support the other players around you and what they can bring to the table 
and you have to get good with weapons that maybe you're not always comfortable with. Um, and you end up having this feeling of you're in this really um, convincing infantry battle and everything becomes a lot more meaningful. Like I think a kill with a bolt action rifle at long range and no, no optics to speak of in red orchestra or rising storm still is one of my most satisfying like gaming experiences. Just always, just always feels amazing. And I think battlefield one kind of has some of those components in terms of the weapons that are on offer and the limitations involved, but it still gives players a, a ton of choice within like different classes and weapons to the point where you can end up with teams that are sort of like uh, in, insanely mismatched or unbalanced until people figure out what class swaps need to happen and what you know what kits they need to be holding, and uh, th- that leaves me feeling a little. I think I think that is one of the things that underlies my occasional frustration with how um, how tilted a map can become. You really do need to have people drop because you have such you can die so quickly that you absolutely need to have a healer on your squad, and you can run out of ammo so quickly that you have to have someone dropping down ammo uh, resupply packs and things like that. However, you can still interact with people in other squads, as in another squad's healer can give you ammo or heal you as well. So I think sometimes if you have a squad that's really mismatched you can still find a bit more balance by just teaming up with another squad, basically. Uh, even though you're in a separate one and you don't have the same level of communication, you can still get some of the benefits. And thus it feels like you're fighting within an army as well as a squad. Yeah, I think it's a lot about how the game expresses a sense of responsibility, which is not very well, typically. Uh, I mean, for one thing, the scale of the game, you're on a 32-player team, there's a lot of room to hide in 32 players. You know, there's a lot of room to be that guy who's just sitting back in your spawn with a sniper rifle and like looking for the opportunistic kills and doesn't want to get get shot. And, and I think in every match, you probably got four or five people that are perhaps doing that, um, depending on who you're playing with. But yeah, again, yeah, you mentioned Rising Storm, uh, lo- lovely sense of asymmetry in that game. There's a commander role. There's one commander per team, and that commander alone has can control artillery, and they they need to like basically run up to these radio boxes in order to access this artillery panel to call in aerial recon mortars, naval barrages. uh, And and there's also like a force respawn button so so you can sort of trigger everybody who's dead, like coming back to life um, as an ability essentially. And, you know, on the other side, you want to eliminate those uh, radio boxes so that you eliminate the ability to even call in um, artillery and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, there's some really interesting uses of responsibility and expressions of that at the skill game. It's also a 64-player game. Um, now, now, Fraser, you'd, you'd have actually played around with another World War One shooter. Uh, mm-hmm, yeah. Verdun. Verdun. Yeah. It's, it's a bit more realistic. It's, it's very much focused on at least the, the selling point. Because there's more to it. There's a, there are more traditional modes. But the selling point is really the trench warfare, where you're basically attacking or defending from a trench. And it is very much... When you jump in at the beginning, you don't know what to do. You you know, put your head out, and you're instantly killed. Uh, and then it's like an agonizing... Because <laughs> it's not quick respawn. I think it's... I don't know, it's 20, 30 seconds. It might, I, I played back when it was still uh, early access. 
And I love the concept of really focusing on the trenches uh, because it makes things... It, it's very different from the, the running and gunning of, of Battlefield 1 or Call of Duty. And there's this kind of... Ner there are these nerve-wracking moments where you're just waiting to charge or waiting to defend from a charge and everything's just a little bit too quiet and you start having a little bit too much time to think about your own mortality and it's really evocative but it's also quite boring it really even more than than battlefield one requires just so much communication because you you don't just have a role your squad has a role and it's you've really got to maintain that throughout so you don't need to just know what you're doing but what the role of the, your entire group is and adhere to that and thus i think you really ha have to be in a pre-made group to be able to take advantage of it and have fun with it although fun might be too strong a word because i i've got to admit i didn't have any fun with with the game ultimately wow. <laughs> i i i love the con I, honestly i think what they did was is really impressive and given that it is a very small studio it's very ambitious and a lot of people really seem to dig what they've done i just don't think that makes for a very fun game where your your life can just be, you you could die just so quickly you don't even feel like you've really done anything with that life you're just dead and you're basically just crouching in a trench for a lot of the game, preparing, planning. So I guess if you're talking to people, it can be a little bit more interesting, but it's just there's not much going on for vast swathes of the game. You're waiting for something to happen, and when it does happen, it's, it's really awesome, although the animations and, and special effects aren't nearly <laughs> as high quality. Exactly. So, but you still you get really invested in it, and and it can be exciting when enemies are pouring over the top, and you you kind of you feel like you know what you need to do, but it's so scary that you just drop everything and try to run, and of course you're dead instantly. But yeah, it's just simply not fun to play. But I think that is because what I'm looking for is more just pure entertainment rather than this realistic simulation of what was a horrifying war. Nobody wants to be in World War One. It's awful. So I don't know why I would want a game that tries to depict it that accurately. Authenticity over accuracy, I think, is what Battlefield 1 does. Not all the time, but at least it makes it a valiant attempt. Whereas Verdun is, is is very much trying to make it as believable as possible. And I don't want to be in the trenches. Yeah, I believe Verdun has a, an expansion uh, from last year called Horrors of War. A free expansion. All right. Wow. Oh, yeah. And what's, and, and like, <laughs> what's in that expansion pack? <laughs> uh, well, there's like Belgium and some other factions, yeah. it looks like, different squads. Uh, the U.S. Doughboys. But, uh, trench foot skin. Yeah, I watched the trailer and it, and it said, experience the horrors of war. <laughs> you get like a letter from your mom just saying, please come home alive. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if you guys have saw the headline of, um, and probably some listeners have, the, the Christmas truce. I mean, Verdun is the game that reenacted the Christmas truce, right? Right. I did, I did hear something about this. So I'm not actually that sure exactly how it played out. Um, 
but they, they even produced like a trailer for it, it looks like, and they encouraged people to donate to a charity that supported children in conflict as they rolled out this DLC. So I don't know. That's, that's a pretty interesting nuanced yeah. expression for a war game to sort of promote an, like an anti-war charity in its process. Um, point now I'm kicking myself that I didn't play Valiant Hearts in preparation for this episode too, because that would have been an interesting oh, thing to bring up. Well, th- that is a, I mean, it's doing a very different thing because it's yeah, purely totally. really narrative. But that's just so upsetting. <laughs> uh, I I really struggled to play it because, and it's it's funny because obviously the actual art style is at least at, at first feels quite kind of fun playful and whimsical and i think when you're hit with the the grim horrors of war and how it tears up families and friendships and it's like man i thought this was just going to be a whimsical cartoon adventure uh, instead you're basically reaching for the hankies and you're just sobbing like a bear and it's uh yeah it's not great but i do recommend it it's if you're looking for something that's more affecting than uh blockbuster shooter then yeah. valiant hearts is for you um <laughs> i think i think it speaks a lot to how much tone factors into our impression of how brutal a game is because if you look at what is arguably the most realistic multiplayer shooter simulation arma 3 mm-hmm. if you if you play arma 3 it's like the most ridiculous silly experience for a lot of people i mean there are plenty of people that play it in an authentic way where they have separate radio protocol and they have guys back at base that just issue radio commands to the rest of the squads the entirety of the match they don't fire a single shot but for most people playing co-op it's like a chance to like run around with your your buds in this like massive landscape and shoot a lot of realistic weapons and say Oscar Mike 20 times. Um, <laughs> Boy, do you sound like you cooled on that game slightly. Oh, arm is wonderful, but it's, it's a lot of walking. Um, it, it's authentic in that sense. And in, in the, uh, you know, time to get from destination, to destination on foot. But um, yeah, I mean, Arma is, is kind of a game without tone to some extent. It really sort of, extracts it from the experience and sort of asks you or asks people who create, you know, all the sort of player created missions that populate the game to enforce that themselves. Which is interesting. It's not, it's not a game. It's a toy box, isn't it? It's a platform for people to create their own games. So it's, I think it would be weird if BI actually added um, a clear tone to the game, because that would basically be limiting, I think, the funny thing creations. is, that's sort of how the series started. Uh, do you remember Operation Flashpoint? Real mm-hmm. well? Mm-hmm. Like, and I, and I think it, I think there was an expansion for it that was even more, like, narratively driven, that was, like, went in a very Red Dawn direction, but what I remember... Dragon something. I can't remember... No, I think that was the sequel, it was. wasn't it? That Cold, was like, Cold War Yeah, Crisis. that was the sequel. Yeah, yes. Um, but... Like Operation Flashpoint starts with your squad going on a routine patrol, like you're driven out by your sergeant to join uh, an infantry squad on this, like, uh, you know, this front line between, uh, you know, this, the, during this armistice between, like, you know, Russian troops and uh, whatever, like, you know, fictional Baltic country you're protecting. Um, and you're driven out there, and it starts as just, like, a squad walking down a road. And, like, literally nothing happens for, like, five, ten minutes. And then suddenly 
you know, you spot like a Russian tank where it shouldn't be, and then you spot like a bunch more, and then there's you know hordes of infantry coming in, and your squad gets slaughtered. Like the the opening of that the opening of that game is is utterly terrifying because it basically turns into uh, almost like survival horror as your squad is just cut to pieces and your sergeant is screaming at you like you've got to get out of here and you need to you need to warn people uh, that there's a Russian armored division uh, coming through and it just turns into this like you can't really outrun them so you literally almost have to like go hide and wait for this like you know wave to pass and then start like working your way back towards friendly lines uh, while being sort of hunted by by these Russian troops. Really terrifying, but also just kind of unimaginable an Arma game having a moment like that, uh, I well, think. Well, in the new one, the new expansion for Arma 3, you are, you are trying to stop some villains using an earthquake device. <laughs> All right. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Interesting. It's, a bold there's decision. loads of... There's plenty of bants as well between. Oh, uh, it's yeah. It, so it adds a lot of really cool stuff because it's like a whole new island. Um, well, see, it's and there's like actually more than one island, and it's um, all like tropical rainforest. Um, it's fantastic for people who create and play the mods and in these really imaginative servers. But the <laughs> campaign is just garbage. Um, it it's also it's it's purely co-op, but also allows you to play single player but there's just no point it is a miserable experience in single player because uh, you just die instantly and then you just respawn and try again and try again so it's kind of single player is like brute forcing it your way to the end to stop these vaguely villainous like private military group or something maybe from setting off a earthquake device because i bloody reviewed it and i still can't remember the whole story um it's it's really bad and it doesn't it's not like there's even a tone to it the story is just stupid and it's but it's done in this really po-faced super serious way um and it just it doesn't work i don't even think it it needs a campaign you could say that the campaigns are a really good way to inspire creators it's like here's what you can make with these tools that we've given you but here's the thing when the expansion came out armor 3 has been out for ages so people have created amazing things you go and play the campaign and you realize wow there are a lot better player creations out there than this thing that bohemia interactive have developed so it's not even a great showcase of what you've got really and a lot of the new stuff isn't even in the campaign um so as we as we wrap this up a little bit um i do think like you know you raised earlier uh evan the the difference between like realism and and authenticity um and yeah i think it's easy to say that like this game sure as hell on no level is is remotely realistic uh but i think where i admire it for being like succeeding somewhat in terms of authenticity is that uh it's often like poorly understood i think just how like world changing world war one was right like it completely shatters um you know a way of life a, a world order and sort of sets things in motion that begin to create the the modern world but also it's the first time a lot of concepts we now take for granted are developed and and weaponized um 
and I, I kind of like as silly as it is to like have a battlefield dominated by uh, a crashed zeppelin, <laughs> sort of burning off in a corner of it, like this, like sort of this, this giant like leviathan uh, from from outer space that's like crashed in the middle of like uh, rural Belgium or something like something like that. As silly as that is, there's kind of a weird. There, the I think it's it ends up making this game kind of successful because even as someone who knows a fair bit about you know that conflict there is a strangeness uh to that world to its version of world war one that actually does end up making it feel perhaps a little more authentic right that like it's it's like your understanding of how the world works doesn't quite function here that you you've stepped into a weird funhouse mirror version of the early 20th century and all its industrial technologies and all its progress where everything sort of become perverted and twisted and gargantuan and scary. Uh, and I, and I kind of, I kind of think that, you know, it, that, that feeling almost compensates for all the ways they made some pretty massive compromises with reality. For sure. I really like what you're saying there. If, if world war one was in part about, you know, the collision of, of humanity and flesh and blood with this insane, powerful technology and us not quite understanding its full extent and, and experimenting with how deadly we can be. And, and, and the feeling of disorientation and, and brutality that comes as, as a part of the, that collision, you know, then, yeah, I think Battlefield 1 expresses that authentically here and there and like pretty successfully for a blockbuster shooter, for, to be sure. And with a lot of restraint compared to that genre of game. Here's what I'm wondering. Do you guys want, say, in future DLC, would you want proper trench warfare? Because a lot of people basically, that's what, when it was first announced and it was quite clear that that type of fighting was not going to really feature in the core game. There was this, there were all these people complaining about it, moaning, uh, being unhappy. And I just kind of, I wonder if they actually knew what that would entail. Because I don't think it would be fun. You know, here, here's my theory about that. It's just like, it's the thing that you say because it's the thing that you know about World War One. I. I don't know. I don't <laughs> want to generalize about everybody on the internet, but it's sort of like, okay, when someone brings up prune juice, they're, they're going to say something about like your digestion and, and being regular. Like, because that's the only thing you know to say about prunes. I don't know any other facts about prunes. See, you it know? almost it, it kind of reminds me of the people who who always say they want the game to be more realistic because that's actually shorthand for them saying they want the game to be more challenging, which in turn is shorthand for them saying I'm really good at shooters. For sure, <laughs> for sure. I mean, advocating for more realism. I, don't, I, I guess I can see instances in which Battlefield could benefit from more fidelity here and there, uh, like the fact that okay. The way they designed the game, the LMGs. We didn't bring this up. LMGs get more accurate as you shoot them. I don't know if you guys have noticed that. That's, that's yeah. It, it was like, it was a, a yeah. pretty major breakthrough for me when I was like, "Why am I doing better when I'm right. not pulsing the weapon?" <laughs> right, and that's that's bizarre, right? I mean, that that's just like strange on paper, but the experience of how that fits in the balance of the game, it makes LMGs succeed in, like where they should, arguably. So I don't know. I feel like we have a lot of ways to go in terms of having a good discussion in gaming among all, all players and, and, and gamers and, and kind of our audiences about the value of authenticity versus realism and the, the clear line between those two things. 
But um, yeah, trench warfare. Def- I mean, there there are trenches in the game. Yeah, there are there some are. interesting in, some and interesting like uses of trenches and bunkers. Yeah, but they're it's because they're pieces of a much larger map. They're not <laughs> the entirety. I mean, I mean as might... much as there are trenches, they've got more in Hoth in Star Wars Battlefront than yeah. right. Battlefield One. <laughs> You know, like I actually, I, I I actually would totally be game for uh for for more trench warfare. Um, like I like I would be really happy if there was some sort of giant like, um, operation. You know, set like set in, you know, sort of your classic Western Front like dense trench lines uh, operation where like infantry are really almost the only way to go. Like if tanks come into the battlefield they're really limited in what they can do and where they can go and they'll spend a lot of it getting bogged. Um, I'd be cool with an operation that is sort of driven like that where you're, you know, it's sort of driven by like seizing strong points and resisting counterattack waves. That could be really cool. Um, God, I'd love to, you know what I'd really love to see is like almost a Titanfall uh, approach where like the battlefield is filled with um, like AI, like drone troops oh, uh, just to give amazing. you a sense of like the scale. Um, and you sort of do have to resist like waves of humans um, thrown in with like massive waves of uh, of sort of drone troops. Um, but yeah, I don't, like I don't want a lot of trench warfare. I think um, like one would be fine. And if it, if if it was maybe an aspect that was added, or or they created maps that had more trenches, but they weren't the entirety of the map. It was part of the, you know, the operation. The first part of that operation maybe uh, would be the trenches, uh, or the second or the final part. I mean, it, know, it it really depends. Even but... there, I say that, but then barbed wire pisses me off so much in this game. Oh, see, like, I like the oh, barbed wire. I, I do. I like it too. It totally succeeds in what it, what it sets out to do. It fills its role. But those few times when, like, I'm trying to edge up to a corner or something like that, and there's like <laughs> a rat's nest of barbed wire, it's you like, know, oh, right where I want to stand. It's like, oh, this sucks. Oh god, I'm cut everywhere. I'm bleeding, and like, I'm I'm slow, and this is terrible. And now I'm thinking, like, well, if you want realistic trench warfare, you realize like a full quarter <laughs> of the map would be that. <laughs> I feel like every time I get caught in the barbed wire, I'm like, this is what would happen to me. This would, I would just constantly be getting snagged on barbed wire. I would just, the moment I climb out, I would just be covered in nothing but little pricks and jags and tears all over my skin. Some that games have a riot shield. Like, this map comes with, like, a mattress that you, like, run up to the barbed <laughs> wire and hurl over it. Um... So, you know, last question for you guys. Uh, in terms of, like, military shooters in the Battlefield series, like, uh, you know, what what have you usually regarded as, like, the series' high point, and, like, where do you where do you rate this one? This is my favorite since 2, um, in the core Battlefield series. Uh, but, um, yeah, because I, I didn't really, I, I didn't get into 4 at all, because early on, with the, all the, the bugs and performance issues and stuff like that, um, and I don't know, like when it came to three, I maybe I just felt a bit burnt out with with modern shooters at the time. Uh, so yeah, one I would say it's the one that I've enjoyed in the core series the most since since two, and maybe up there with like Bad Company. Same here. Uh, I, th- I think I think it simply has the most interesting infantry gameplay. That's why I play Battlefield. I think the the aerial naval tank stuff i mean it, it's sort of a nice distraction it's a nice obstacle to overcome in multiplayer but for me it, it represents the best refinements as a result of those interesting limitations 
in the guns. You know, if I look back at Battlefield 4, which I reviewed and I enjoyed at the time, that's a game that really it's the game with evolution in it. It's the game where a skyscraper tumbles down as, as a single event in every multiplayer match, potentially. And you're supposed to look up at that in awe, like the 17th time that it happens, you know, the, this, this, the subtlety of the battlefield one has, I mean, you'll, you'll experience a, a dust storm in the desert where you're only able to see like 10 or 15 feet in front of you. And that might happen every other match or something, but it's, it's more restrained. Yes. There's a blimp that can fall on top of you on fire. Um, but for me, it just gets gets down to the the. Gr- I'm gritting my teeth a lot much more than I have in a battlefield series. I'm, I feel like every kill is much more earned, and and that's that's kind of what I'm looking for because that's the experience that I have in Rising Storm, and I love Rising Storm. I'm really glad to see Battlefield One kind of inherit some some of the sense of restraint and 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 like fun struggle that I have uh, in in getting kills. Um, quick question for you, Evan. Do you prefer, like, would this game be better for you if there were no, like, tanks and aircraft in it? Like, would that be even more the battlefield you want? Man, um, I do wish there was a mode that admitted them completely. I mean, there is that um, one mode, but that's a dom- that's the domination <laughs> mode that's just, sure. like, infantry, like, getting spawned everywhere and anywhere. Right. You can remove them from custom modes, though, right? Yeah, that's true. That's true. I don't know. I mean, I, I think... I think they do create a, a good food chain. I mean, obviously, a lot of the equipment is, is tied up with countering tanks and whatnot. But um, one of their best effects to me is is being a distracting force. I mean, when a plane like buzzes over your head, you you feel like that's an imminent threat. You need to like call out attention to your allies to to deal with it, even if you you can't if you you can't do it. Likewise, you know the selection of anti tank weapons. I think this is like a really interesting design choice because the the proliferation of rpgs in battlefield 4 and, and previous like you could just anybody could blow up a tank it felt i hated like. to be in a tank to be honest i was like well now now i'm a huge freaking target yeah but there's there's a feeling of helplessness and vulnerability i think now when you're up against armor because if you're a medic you can throw like an incendiary grenade at it maybe and like maybe do like 20 damage most um but then the assault troopers are like, all right, yeah. let's let's bum rush this thing with our anti-tank grenades or try mm-hmm. to set up an ambush with these ridiculously cumbersome uh, slow-firing rocket guns. So, which only have, what, three? There's three ammo before you have to get a resupply yeah. as well. For sure. Like, and, <laughs> that could tank quickly. Tanks can repair themselves independently just by sort of retreating and you don't have to get out yeah. and like use a wrench or anything. So that's sort of weirdly anachronistic and actually like a, a buff, so to speak, for tanks across the series so ultimately i think it's a really good design choice to have them in there it, it, it represents some some kind of interesting design bravery on dice's part to make them so powerful and insignificant like you really feel threatened by them and vulnerable which i think is a valuable feeling to put in the series in general uh, so i think for me like bad company 2 is sort of my um you know the, for me that's the apotheosis of of the battlefield series uh, overall uh in part because it was the, also the last campaign uh, that I enjoyed in the Battlefield series. Um, but I think mostly what I what I remember being sort of revolutionary about that was the destructibility, um, the fact that, like, Rush Mode did have this feeling of, like, stages and stories being told, you know, as things were leveled and destroyed and what starts out as sort of a pristine, like, you know, seaside jungle village uh, is by the end uh, just a blasted hellscape. Um, and I feel like the series got away from that. And Battlefield 3 feels much more um, like expansive and also vehicle-driven. 
uh, Battlefield 4. I didn't I didn't get too much into, uh, but this one definitely feels like it's it's by far the most I've enjoyed a Battlefield since Bad Company 2, and it actually brings back a lot of things I really liked about it. Uh, time will tell if I actually prefer it to Battlefield 2. I. I I bad company too. Uh, I, I I chafe a little bit at the um, the unlocks uberales approach to design that's sort of overtaken the military shooter. Like bad company too, there were unlocks, but like there was also more variety at the start. And here it's like here's your very limited weapon selection. Chance there's a good chance also the weapons you're you're, you're expecting to find here you you can't even play with at the start. Um, and then you're gonna have to you got to grind for your war bonds, but then you also got to grind for your levels uh, before you can use all that stuff. I don't know how I feel about that. I, I'm I think maybe I would have enjoyed that more when I had more free time, but now I I kind of chafe against that uh, a very little bit. At the same time, like the the opening slate of weapons is good, uh, but yeah, I think by and large it's it's memorable. It's it's dramatic. Um, Easily the best the series has been in years for me, and uh, actually a pretty a pretty decent World War One game uh, in some ways if you're if you're willing to make some uh, some allowances for it. So Rob, it sounds like you're going to be purchasing the they not they shall not pass DLC to download the French army that that trivial faction within World War One. <laughs> <laughs> Is the Russian army in the game? No, they're not yet, are they? No, they're not. But yeah, the French is going to be added in DLC. So okay. Look forward to playing Will as there that, be... you know, that, 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 that that tiny faction within World War One. I. I mean, I wonder if they like are they, are they going to do any additional like story missions, storylines? Because like, man, I, mean, I imagine it's is it just going to be like a faction pack? So it is just you get the French, probably with some maps. Because how? Do, yeah, because it would have to make sense for like the operations and things like that. So maybe like a new operation. They're definitely going to have maps. I know that the They Shall Not Pass DLC is focused on Verdun, interestingly, so it'll be interesting to see like their treatment of oh, Verdun com- compared to Verdun. Fourth do them all. <laughs> that's going to be that's going to be a maybe, blast. Maybe we'll get what we wanted in trenches. We'll see. I will reiterate: everyone should read uh, Alistair Horn's Verdun: The Price of Glory, because um, in addition to being a really amazing book about um, how the war changed France and really set it on its uh, trajectory towards Vichy uh, in 1940. Um, it also just has one of the most astonishing and at times hilarious accounts of um, the fall of Fort Duomont around Verdun, uh, which basically turns into a um, like almost like a bedroom bedroom farce uh, within this massive French fortress uh, that is accidentally kind of left undefended and it takes both sides the better part of a night to realize that something is going on in there uh it's 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 a blast everyone should uh should take a look so is that the only expansion that's that's on the horizon evan or is there is there more as well i'm sure we'll have more i mean there were a ton for yeah that's true for battlefield 4 i, I can't imagine this will be the first but i think it might be the well they've got a season pass so right. they, there's got to be at least like three or four things right yeah, I think that's something that I hope they're careful with too. I think something that put me off for was that um, they started segmenting the player population so quickly among DLCs that like it really started aggressively like shoving in my face the fact that like oh sorry the server just went over to this map and now you can't play here anymore. Back to back to matchmaking. Uh, that that was a little frustrating. 
Uh, so I hope they're I hope they're careful with stuff like that. Uh, was there a last comment? Oh, just that it, it. I did see that the Russian Empire is going to be included in an upcoming expansion pack. Okay, cool. Well, there you hopefully go. Hopefully, some good some good Eastern Front uh, Brusilov action. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, that will do it for this week. Uh, we'll be back next week with more strategy discussion. Uh, Three Moves Ahead is produced, as always, by Michael Hermes and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Uh, finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. Uh, anyway, we'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, for Evan Lottie and Fraser Brown, this is Rob Zachney. Saying goodnight.